0: Welcome to the Outcomes Rocket Podcast, where we inspire collaborative thinking, improved outcomes, and business success with today's most successful and inspiring healthcare leaders and influencers.
1: And now your
0: host, Saul Marquez.
1: All right, Outcomes Rocket listeners, and I want to welcome to the show today, Scott Becker. Scott has a legal and financial background a graduate of Harvard Law, and also a CPA. He's a very humble gentleman. Didn't want me to mention, but I will tell you guys, he was at Harvard Law with President Obama. He's been on the board of partners for McGuire Woods Law Firm since 2008. He's the former chairman of the firm's healthcare department, where he provides counsel on healthcare transactional and regulatory matters. Scott's also the publisher for Becker's Hospital Review, a nationally respected source for healthcare news. Scott. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to the intro that I may have missed? No, Saul. I think that's terrific, and thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Awesome. Glad you're on. Well, Scott, as you know, at Outcomes Rocket, we believe that candid collaboration is pivotal to solving today's healthcare challenges and also maximizing the opportunities. So this podcast is a forum where healthcare influencers and leaders like yourself can express your ideas and share your perspective on how we could work together to improve health and financial outcomes in healthcare. Are you ready to roll? I sure am, and thank you for having me. Outstanding. So let's start with this, Scott. Uh, why did you decide to get into the medical sector? You know, how I got into the medical
0: sector was sort of more by chance and process than by some great desire to be a healer, or to be someone who did great things. So I I somewhat, you know, in being frank and direct, I would love to say I did it because I was trying to help people. It was more just the area I evolved into. I was a young lawyer, a young publisher, and it was an area, the healthcare area, that was just really interesting to me, interesting, and it was not limiting. For Mm -hmm. some of the same reasons it's not limiting today. 20% of the economy, so it gave you lots of different places to fit into the healthcare world without necessarily cutting off lots of other options. The other great benefit of the healthcare world, and you have to remember, I come from originally being a young lawyer and wanting to build a healthcare legal practice, and I had two choices as a young lawyer, to be sort of a generalist or to be in a niche. I was a big believer in being in a niche for a whole bunch of reasons. I'm a believer in being in niches because you're more valuable, you're more useful. But it also in building a practice as a young lawyer, and this ended up being the same concept in our publishing world and in the media business, was I didn't ever want to be at a spot where anybody I met, I had to be selling to. I wanted to be limited. I didn't want to be cocktail parties and trying to develop a legal practice. I didn't want to be calling on family members. So this allowed me to sort of be in the business of healthcare and be in healthcare without having to be in a spot where I had to turn every single waking moment into having to be on for sales or business development. It allowed me to focus and grow without being a generalist. And the healthcare world was a beautiful place to
1: do that. And it remains just an interesting, interesting area. Awesome. No, that's really great, Scott. Sounds like just having that niche and not being that salesy person, just having a place where you could offer value immediately. That's awesome. So what would you say, Scott, and, and thanks for sharing that, is a hot topic that you feel should be on medical leaders' agendas today? And how are you and your organization approaching that particular topic? I think that's a great question. We spend time in sort of two
0: worlds, it's the, in terms of the healthcare world, it's watching great leaders that constantly come back to the basics of great patient care and what works for patients. So when I look at great leaders today, there's a CEO who is formerly the CEO of UCLA, is now the CEO at Geisinger Health in Pennsylvania, David Feinberg. And he does this wonderful job in this constantly changing world of healthcare of constantly bringing back the discussion and in a very real way, to patient care, not sort of patient care metrics, not patient care salesmanship, but actually how do we improve the experience for the patient? And I think there is so many changes going on and so many challenges that at some point, the constant reverberation back to patient quality and patient care, I think is just so healthy for everybody in the healthcare world to to constantly reverberate to and he's about as good at doing that and bringing that discussion back as anybody I know that is out
1: there. Awesome. So patient care and improving that, that experience of all things, keeping the patient at, at the center of what it is that the organization is doing. And how about for, for McGuire Woods? How does patient care become a focus there? Or how is that part of the agenda there?
0: Yeah, I think it, McGuire Woods is a different animal entirely. McGuire Woods is a large sort of international law firm with a 1,000 lawyers, it's sort of a different game because it's not really, and then one small part of McGuire Woods is our national healthcare practice, which is one of the largest in the country, but it's really a small part of the McGuire Woods in its entirety. Our sort of core concept goes back to something we discussed earlier. In, in our business efforts, we look at two things, being niche dominant, so being total sort of leaders in the small areas that we're in, and so those areas might be hospital health systems, Surgery centers, healthcare finance, private equity investment in healthcare, and then the second thing, which comes closer to patient experience, but obviously is very different, is being very customer centric. So we look at it as niche centric, being dominant in our niches, and then customer centric for the clients that are so important to our firm. It's whatever we can do for them to make their experience with the firm as great as possible, so that they remain long-term clients with the law firm, is so that they're well served and you know, people have very, very clear thoughts about did my lawyers give me good advice? Did they treat me fairly? Are they trying to rip me off? All those kinds of things. And our goal is to stay, stay so close to our clients in terms of customer experience that they're with us for decades. I mean, that's
1: sort of I, as close as I can get because we're not really in that patient care business at McGuire Woods. For sure. And you know what, Scott, one of the things that I will say is, you know, I've, I've been to one of your meetings, actually several, but at one of them, you know, I just had the opportunity to see you interact with the various, you know, C-suite individuals. And and I could definitely see your customer-centric approach in the way that you just work with everybody. So your actions speak as loud as your words. So really, really thank you for mentioning that. niching, Niche dominance and also that customer-centric approach. Awesome. Thank you. And we view it. Just, I mean, to follow up on it, in the media world for
0: our meetings, our conferences, we view it as there's three very different constituents that we have to make sure are completely taken care of. There's the speakers that make the meeting go. So at our hospital conference, there might be 100 to 200 hospital system speakers at the event. We have to make sure they have an experience that's worth them coming back to year after year. There's our attendees, which are so important to everything make sure they have a wonderful experience, they get something out of it that they want to come back. And then there's finally the sponsors and advertisers that pay the bills for it. So it's being very, very focused on making sure all three of those very distinct constituencies have a great experience and want to make this part of their annual efforts. But it's the same concept of being deep in the specific niche, but then really focused on who's our customer here and how do we make sure that they have a great experience at
1: whatever we're doing. That's a great example of how you've used the same model onto the conferences, which Outcomes Rocket listeners, if you have not attended, you've got to check them out. There's major value at these meetings. And uh, I'll be posting the a link to the Becker's meetings at the bottom of the show notes so that you could tap in it and get some value from what these guys are doing. They're really doing some great stuff for healthcare. So Scott, I'm a big fan of the quote, if you do what you've always done you'll get what you've always gotten. It reminds me of Elon Musk's idea of reasoning by first principles versus reasoning by analogy. That is, instead of making decisions like something else or like what other people are doing, boiling it down to the most simple fundamental truths of any problem or topic, and then reasoning up from there to get better and just non-conventional results. Can you give Outcomes Rocket listeners an example of how you and your organization have created results by thinking and doing things differently? I can try. I mean, what's so interesting to me is you had asked a different
0: question about what are sort of the great books you recommend. And you had, uh, this is one of the questions you had thought about or thought we might talk about. And so Absolutely. I've come up with a couple of those and they'll relate back to this. There are three books. One is by a colleague of Elon Musk's, Peter Thiel, who I think is sort of a brilliant person who wrote a book called Zero to One. Mm -hmm. And his concept is one of not to be constantly incremental, but to look to how do you create something different and great. So that's one book. And I'll come back to that thought in a second. The second two books are a Jack Welch book from way back from my generation of management of people saying, if we're going to be in a market, we want to be a leader in that market, whatever it's going to be. And then the third book is a Jim Collins book, who's also one of the great business writers of our time, to go with Peter Drucker. And his book was Good to Great. And the concept in his book was that you want to really, you can do whatever you want strategically as long as you have great people in place. That the whole core concept of business is built around great people. So when I look at these different concepts, the James Collins one of great people in place that that's everything is something I truly believe in completely, that you can't do anything without great people and all that great ideas in the world meaningless without great people. The Peter Thiel concept, who's Elon Musk's colleague and was with him at PayPal and they invest together, they've done a lot of things together, is a fascinating concept of rather than aiming to be incremental, is aiming to be great. Myself, I've always been sort of more of a blocker and tackler execution person than what I think of as a great thinker. And so my challenge as I read things like that and try and grow is to constantly look at how do we do what we're doing, but in a very special way, to add some special value to it, to do something a little bit differently. So our Mm -hmm. concept in the media company has come down to our constant goal is to teach and entertain. So to sort of mix great teaching, great education with great entertainment, and we'll get constant questions on, well, why do you have, you know, an Arnold Schwarzenegger as a keynote speaker or Sugar Ray Leonard or Ariana Huffington. And I have to tell people, well, that's not really the teaching part of the meeting. That's entertainment. And Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's dawn to them, sometimes it doesn't. But we constantly come back to this concept of teaching and entertaining. And what I I don't know that I have got the capability like an Elon Musk or Peter Thiel to come up with the great ideas. I've always Mm -hmm. been better at sort of looking at we're often a number two starter in the market, but then trying to do it better. And then constant discipline to keep on trying to get better. There's a guy, I think you live in Chicago. There's a a famous business here in Chicago where the proprietor of it has constantly made improvements every year to it. So constantly and constantly trying to get better. Mm -hmm. And I think from our perspective as a company, It's building around great people, it's being niche dominant, and then constantly trying to improve every single year. So I'm not sure, Saul, if I'm hitting your question right or not, but I'm trying.
1: No, Scott, and you know what? You mentioned something super important. It's this concept of blocking and tackling. Really, you know, this fundamentally, you got to block and tackle to win a game. And each of our businesses, you've got to be able to do that. And, you know, before you even think about doing something innovative, so the value of that is, is so important. And oftentimes, you know, people could get even lost in this whole trying to be innovative and then they they miss the point and they don't achieve their, their mission or their objectives. So I think it's great, Scott. Thanks for, for diving into that and keeping it real for us, because oftentimes it's easy to, to get away from the day-to-day blocking and tackling and focus on something just to be cool or just to try to fit in to a mold. No, thank you. We've we've struggled with that. It's We've always, people said like, my God,
0: that was genius to become an expert or leader early on in my legal practice in surgery centers. And I have to remind them, oh no, 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 there was no genius in that. That was trial and error through three different areas. And that's the one that sort of took off. And I ended up originally building my legal practice around that area. But my view of the world was there was literally no genius in it. The genius was not being afraid to try a few different things
1: and stick with them till one started to show results. Scott, that's so great. And that really leads to a nice segue into the next uh, question here. You know, it's you tried different things until you landed on something that really started cranking for you. So it's not always rainbows and sunshines out there. And it's often how we deal with these challenges and adversity and feedback that truly defines our success. Can you share with Outcomes Rocket listeners a time when you made a mistake or failed and what you got out of it? Can you take us to that moment? Sure. And we've all had a variety of different failures. I would
0: say the great failures I've had were a couple fold. One of the great failures was I would at times take the next role in an organization, Or take on a role in an organization where I really wasn't excited about it, but it was the next right thing to do in the organization. And whenever I found myself doing that, I would end up very flat, very energetic. The goals weren't my own. They didn't excite me. I wasn't passionate about them. And they they almost became sort of, quote unquote, resume things, rather than things that added any real value to anybody, including myself. And so when I look at failures and I've got a couple of specific ones, you know, I ended up taking a role in something early on in life that I really had no great desire for other than the fun of campaigning for the role. But the role itself left me very empty because I didn't have great goals for what to do in that role. And I think whenever you sort of put yourself in sort of a, I forget the phrase and I won't hit it right, round peg and square hole or vice versa, you end up in a bad spot. And the flip side is, To avoid that, you've got to constantly find ways to find things that keep you interested and excited so that you don't end up, by default, putting yourself in roles that you're not excited about. And that, I think, for most people, especially I'm 52 now, those things get harder and harder to keep on finding interesting things, things that excite you, things that are challenging, and stir your passion in doing them at the same time. And I'm not a believer in contrast to somebody who says, well, I shouldn't do anything I'm not passionate about. Because I do believe everybody's got a responsibility to work, pay the bills to their family, do all the right things they've got to do to take care of their family, to take care of what they're taken care of and themselves. So I'm not a believer in that you don't do things you're not passionate about. Of course, we'll have to pay the bills, do those. You got to do those things well. But the more you can find things that really challenge you and excite you, and you're not doing them just for the money or just for the prize
1: then you're a much more self-actualized leader in person. Thanks for sharing that, Scott. So how would have things worked out differently had you the knowledge that you have now? Would you have said no to some of those opportunities or do you feel like they were a necessary part of your journey? I think that's a great question. I think I probably would have
0: said no to some of them for sure. And I've gotten far better at (laughs) saying no to them, at at saying no to stuff. And And I get it, I'm flattered and periodically close colleagues will ask me for advice about how do they do things do they choose to pursue this or that. And I'll be able to come back to some of this advice as to, well, what are you trying to accomplish? What do you really want to do? And do you, is that really helpful or not? You know, and are you excited about it or not? But I think I probably would have passed on a few things rather than got myself engaged with them. You know, and this is the constant challenge of life is to spend time doing things that you love doing or are excited about doing, versus things that you sort of end up choosing to do that you probably shouldn't have. But it's a constant challenge. But I probably would have been much more aggressive about saying no to some of those things.
1: Got it. Yeah. And out comes Rocket Listeners. You know, one of the things that, that we could pull out of, of Scott's message here that we all experience as leaders is how do our personal missions and agenda align with that of the organization? And oftentimes if if that doesn't that that alignment is is not there, then maybe it's best, even though it might seem like the politically right thing to do, to take the next step, maybe it's best that we don't do that because it might cost the business and it might cost you personally. So Scott, really, a really great message for you to share. Thanks for that. No, my pleasure. And thank you. So what would you say, let's take this coin and flip it on the other side, is your proudest medical leadership experience or the moment that you've experienced to date? Maybe it's a turnaround moment that became a defining moment in the way that you do or approach things.
0: Yeah, I think my quietly... Most proud moments are as follows, and I'll take you to what are not my most proud moments. Okay. I used to think in the law firm or in personal whatever that I will have arrived if I built this size legal practice, if I built this, or mm-hmm. if I put away this amount of money or did this. What I've always found on all those kinds of things, well, important for different reasons, they never, whenever you reach any of those goals, leave you with particularly warm or deep feelings of satisfaction. They're just sort of like their numbers or whatever, but they're not sort of deeply proud or deeply satisfying moments. What I think of as deeply proud moments, and it was sort of like it, it dawned on me as it started to happen, it's when people that worked for me in the law firm started to become partner and leaders in the law firm, people that I'd mentored and worked with and developed. Those were deeply satisfying moments. When I look at one of my young partners now, who now has a person that he's promoted and mentored that woman is now becoming partner. Those are moments where you say, now you've arrived, not because of what you've done, but because the people after you have now become promoted into the spots that were their goals and dreams, you've then sort of, you've actually, things you can be deeply proud of. I mean, similarly, as I ended up in this media business, and it's a scary thing in business where you get to the spot where everybody that works with you can do things that were initially what you did better than you ever did them. And quite frankly at this point, could never do them as well as you used to or as well as people do. Mm -hmm. When you end up having the, you know, and and for control freak people like myself, when you get to the spot and you realize, (laughs) oh my God, I've got all these people that do everything better than me and it's okay. And I'm proud of them and they've arrived and they're growing into leaders themselves. Those are things that are deeply satisfying in ways that a lot of the other things are nice byproducts, but those are deeply satisfying things that when our people end up thriving themselves or being promoted themselves and growing into leadership themselves, you know, as I think throughout the last decade to two, those are things that have been tremendously proud moments for myself.
1: And it's a reflection of your own past. For sure, Scott. And it sounds like, you know, it's not all about the dollars and cents. It's about what are we doing to build our our people? And what are we doing to build the culture and just be that, that ripple effect? You know, be that initial stone that just ripples out and, and touches and helps everybody in the organization around you succeed. That's right. I mean that that we find to be in the long run far more sustaining and
0: far more exciting. Like it's really a fascinating thing to watch. And what you find is all the monetary things and all those things are nice and they pay the bills and they allow you to do things you want to do, but they're not very satisfying. They're not, nobody gets that excited. Put another dollar in the bank account. It's important to be able to do that, take care of family and other things, but it's not exciting. There's just no excitement in it. The excitement is in watching these things grow and things
1: happen with them. Yeah, Scott. And you know, one of the things that I admire you for is being able to be comfortable with the people around you are now just, you know, doing things way better than you can do. And you're providing that strategic direction. And I really feel like there's a lot of leaders that have a hard time with that. And so, what kind of advice would you give to leaders that are in that position where this is happening to them and so what's the cost of putting these people down and what is the benefit of and how do you allow them to flourish there's a great
0: concept that's talked about and we all aspire to it and but you know often people like myself who have this mix of achievement orientation and ego and other things have a hard time with it sometimes you have very challenging time with it there's a concept of a level 5 leader who's a very, very effective leader. And okay. this is a concept from different literature and business books. Level five leader would be a very, very effective leader. A level six leader would be the next level leader who's made the organization, he or she has made the organization great, and their ego is one step back. It's become great in the absence of that being the total face and pride of everything and being having to be in every single thing. And so at some point, maybe Bill Gates became a level six leader, Steve Jobs might not have ever become a level six leader, just simplistically, but still was a magnificent leader. Uh, But the ability to thrive as an organization and to be um, able to take a step back and realize, like, I'm a huge fan in a sales organization that there's some organizations that say, well, we're going to limit that person's commissions after a certain level. We would never want to do that. I never want to stop somebody who wants to perform or wants to achieve as long as you're doing it in a highly ethical way. I mean, similarly, if I got people that want to work very hard, they're free to do so, but I would also sit down with them and say the big benefits for you in the long run are not just working that hard, but they're also doing these other things on the side too that help strengthen your own situation. For a leader, I guess the take-home message I really came back to years and years ago was, was the concept of always trying to hire people that are as good or as bright or brighter and better than yourself. And and this is sort of the take them concept. And this is, there's an old adage that nines hire seven. So highly performing people often hire people that they feel won't challenge or threaten them. And an organization has to be strong enough that people realize, look, if you hire somebody who's brilliant and does great, And does great work and moves the organization forward that's not going to harm you
1: absolutely scott so ultimately scott just hiring a level above you to really bring value to the organization that's powerful thanks for sharing that my pleasure thank you so tell us a little bit more about an exciting project or focus that you're working on today that maybe our listeners could benefit from or learn from sure and as you know we're in the event and meeting business as part of the media
0: company one of the things we're most excited about is how much our annual meeting that we do each April has grown. This year, for example, we'll have 230 hospital executives speaking at the meeting. We've got Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jay Leno as entertainment at the meeting. We then have some of the greatest CEOs in the business. Toby Cosgrove, who's been recently in the news, CEO of Cleveland Clinic speaking. Marna Borgstrom, the brilliant CEO from Yale New Haven Hospital speaking. Rodney Hockman, CEO of the Providence Health Systems, together with the magnificent CEO from UCLA, Johns Hopkins. And it's exciting for us to see these things come together after years of doing this into a different level. We're playing a game that's very fun, very satisfying, and just created something exciting and interesting. So that's something we're really
1: excited about right at the moment. That's outstanding, Scott. And Outcomes Rocket listeners, the meeting that Scott holds, as I mentioned before, is excellent. And when you have 230 hospital executives and some of the greatest CEOs, some really great speakers, I had an opportunity last time I was at the meeting to actually meet President George Bush which was really fun and exciting. So you never know who you're going to run into at these meetings. If you haven't been to them, you've got to make it. I'll be sure to put a link at the bottom of our show notes to make sure that you are aware and that you make it out there because these are the movers and shakers in healthcare. And Scott Becker and his team are getting these thought leaders together to share those thoughts that are going to help improve our health care for today and also tomorrow. That's really exciting, Scott. Thank you, Saul. We're very excited. But we've got a great, it's just, it's very interesting. We've got a great CEO of the publishing
0: company. who's magnificent. It's my partner in it. that's just done a magnificent job leading it and growing it. And I've been fortunate in the law firm, too. We've got a magnificent uh, former mentee of mine who now runs the National Health Care Department. Amber Walsh is also magnificent. It's been fun to
1: watch them grow these different things they do. And you're surrounding yourself with wonderful leaders, and they're doing a great job. So, Scott, let's pretend that you and I are building a medical leadership course what it takes to be successful in medicine today. Let's call it the Scott 101 course. And I'd like to write out the syllabus with you. And so, let's Let's go ahead and do that by, I'm going to give you a couple questions and get your brief answers to the following questions. Does that sound good? I'm going to try, but, but we've got to come up with a better name for the course, but I'm going to try, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So what is one key driver to success in today's complex healthcare environment? That's a great
0: question, and I wish I had a great answer because it's such a complex area. I mean, it's easy to go back to always keeping the focus on patient care. But it's such a complex world in business today that I'm not sure that I've got a great answer to that other than that, we constantly come back to, which is if I was going to build a medical course, I'd want to build it around you know, great speakers and a great producer of that course.
1: Learning from those that, that have done it so that you could reproduce what they've done. Love it.
0: I think I would start with just hiring great people to run it. It's just not like we're constantly trying to put together great business courses in healthcare, more business focused and clinical focus that I've got a good feel for, but trying to put together a good clinical curriculum is something I
1: would be at a loss for and not suited for. Not a problem. Yeah. But but you'd get the right people to help put it together. That's where we would start. Excellent. So what would you say is the biggest mistake to avoid in effectively leading a successful healthcare organization? And maybe you take this from the angle of a, a law firm's perspective.
0: Yeah, I think the biggest mistake to avoid, really, it all comes back to, it starts with having the right people in place. And to me, everything is about people If you have great people who are great in ethics, integrity, intelligence, drive, motivation, then you could build and do great things. Without those, you can't. And so like we have so many great young and middle-aged and old people that work with us in different sectors. What I think is fascinating is when people sort of criticize the younger generation about work ethic or this or that, I just think constantly the people that we've hired have missed that memo. Because they're all highly motivated, bright, driven, and fantastic. And I think this concept of this generation is good, this generation is bad, is all lost. Because for most of us, we don't need millions of employees. We need 20. We need 100. We need 200. And out of the 300 million people in our country, you can find 200 great ones. It's just not that hard. But it takes a lot of work keep on providing an atmosphere and environment on every level that they're excited about. But I think if you have great people in place,
1: everything else can work. Awesome. And what is one thing that you must do to differentiate your leadership style from the crowd?
0: I think the, um, it, this goes back to something that is, and I'm not sure this is one thing, what, years and years ago, when I was a first young lawyer, and this goes back to the late 80s, where the, the model was, you yelled at younger associates to get them to get stuff done. And I must have been 30 at the time, probably too harsh and 25, 26, 27 year olds. But this was sort of the model of the work. Maybe I was 32. And one of my young lawyers, who was a very, very smart person, had the wherewithal to take me to side to say, every time you yell at somebody, it not just harms that person, which is because you probably felt that that person wasn't doing their job, but it hurts the entire environment that we're working in. It screws up the entire environment. And to me, it was a, one, it took great guts for this person to come talk to me because at the time I was probably a young partner. He was an associate and took me aside and did it in a private way and said, it's just a bad way of handling things. It was eye-opening to me and a learning experience for me. And to my credit, I was able to, from that moment on, get yelling out of my method of leadership entirely. And I think without that person, and his name was Marcelo Corpus, that I've written about this before, without him having the wherewithal to talk to me separately and explain it to me, I probably would have kept in the model of how many other people were managing at that date and time in that world 30 years ago or 25 years ago. And, wow. and to me, that moment I made that change was eye-opening in terms of my ability to be engaged in much bigger organizations and have a leadership role that was useful. I mean, the concept was you can get a ton out of somebody very short term by yelling or screaming at them, but long term that you couldn't build teams. And the concept to go with best and brightest is nothing gets done in today's world without teams. You might need an individual driver or fire starter or hyper motivated person to push a team along, but nothing gets done in today's world that's of any significant without there being a team and I think that just is completely true at least in the media business the law business there is no one person shows there's just not anymore even like the greatest of greats like Michael Jordan couldn't win titles so they brought along Scottie Pippen, and Horace Grant and others and I think in business it's never been more true everything is about teams and then leaders of those teams are so important but probably the key moment for me and I, the yelling thing—it might have been self-satisfying, it might have been a model I'd seen—but the one associate that pulled me aside and said, "You know, that's a bad idea. That screws up the whole environment," was an eye-opening experience for me. That, to my credit, I was able to change and stop it on a dime, and never do it again. Yes. Or hard I—I really, I mean, I shouldn't like once every couple of years, once every three years, I might yell at somebody, and. When I do yell at them, I'm actually like almost <laughs> happy that I still have it, the ability to do it, but, it's, uh, but it was a learning experience for me as to how stupid, it, how bad a tactic it is, and,
1: and, and how bad a way of doing this it is. And Scott, you know, what I observe and hear from your comments is, number one, you listened, right? You were a leader that listens, and number two, you were insightful enough and critical enough to say, Wow maybe this person has a point i'm going to change course here and see how it works and and it's done uh, wonders for you so really great that you shared that with us and it shows us really those those two very important messages listen and be able to change if you feel that makes a difference thank you no it was it was a fascinating life experience for I me mean, <laughs> it really was it, it... that's great and so the last one here in the scot 101 course was about the books and you had mentioned those earlier and those books if I remember correctly, Scott, it was Peter Thiel, zero to one, Jim Collins, good to great. And what was the title of the Jack Welch book? You know, I'm spacing on the title of Jack Welch book.
0: Jack Welch, you know, it still speaks and writes stuff like that. But at the time growing in my generation, he was sort of the premier CEO of our generation. And his clear concept was, you only wanted to be in spots where you could be a leader in the market. And I think his theory on that. That's right. I remember you said that. At the that. end of the day, you want to be one or two in whatever market you're in. As much as that gets poo-pooed today or knocked down today as an idea, I think is completely correct in terms of business today. And it resonates, quite
1: frankly, with some of the Peter Thiel comments. Got it. That is awesome. Well, sign me up for that course. Scott, I, I would definitely, if you offered that, I'd be signing up today. And I'll comes Rocket Listeners, I'm sure I've gotten a lot of value from you just sharing these points. And I'll be including all the resources in the show notes. When you listen to this episode, you can go to www.outcomesrocket.com and just look up Scott Becker in the search bar and it'll pop them right up. You'll be able to listen to this episode and also see all the links to the resources and books. Before we conclude, Scott, can you share one closing thought? And then Share where Outcomes Rocket listeners can get in touch with you, and then we'll conclude. Sure. Thank you. No, I think the the great
0: challenge is to constantly find yourself in positions that you're excited about, that you don't have to artificially create the excitement. And that's one of the great challenges in leadership and in careers and in life, is to constantly try and find things that excite you and will get you out of bed and excited and purposeful you know, without having to put crazy effort into it, that you really want to do this, that it's exciting to you, that's one. And then people can get in touch with me. The easiest way is to call me at 312-750-6016, or I could always be emailed at sbecker at mcguirewoods.com or sbeckershealthcare.com, and always delighted to talk to anybody and hear what they have to say or give my two cents, et cetera. But Saul, just a pleasure being with you. Thank you so much for inviting me.
1: Scott, thanks for your time and insights. And we learned a great deal from you today. And we really look forward to putting these ideas into practice and staying in touch with you. Thanks so much, Scott. Take care. Thank you, sir.
0: Thanks for listening to the Outcomes Rocket podcast. Be sure to visit us on the web at www.outcomesrocket.com for the show notes, resources, inspiration, and so much more.